Good evening, dear people of God. It's a a privilege to be here in this place once again. Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and be turning with me uh, to the Old Testament book of Genesis. Well, actually, to the first book of the Bible. And then, if you would, to the last book of the Bible as well, uh, Genesis and Revelation. We're going to preach all the way through the whole Bible tonight. (laughs) Not really, (laughs) but it is a thought. (laughs) Also, we're always glad to have those of you who are here with us via live stream. And uh, may the Lord uh, bless you for having gathered with us in that fashion. Let's look at the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 3, very familiar verse, chapter 3 and verse 15. And this is what we call the Proto-Evangelum, which is really an ultimate prediction of our Savior. And this is after the fall of Adam and God comes and he says, verse 15, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then over to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 12, and verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to keep your Bibles open, particularly to chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, beginning with verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If you would, bow with me and let's ask God's blessing upon the ministry of this, his word. Let's pray. O Holy Father, we bow once again in your presence, in the consciousness, indeed in the felt sense of our utter dependency upon you our need of you. And we ask, O Father, that you would come powerfully granting seed to the one who sows and bread to those who eat. To the end, Father, that you might be magnified in our presence. And to also to the end that this will be helpful to your people. We thank you for the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, 
Grant, O Holy Father, that we may see that afresh in these verses tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I have been preaching a series of sermons on the message of Christ crucified. And we come tonight to the message of Christ crucified, the triumph of the cross. And as we come to this portion of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're confronted here with one of the great abiding messages of this particular book. And it is this. All that transpires in human history finds its true significance in its relationship to the history and the ultimate triumph of Christ and his church. All that transpires in human history finds its true significance in its relationship to the history and the ultimate triumph of Christ and his church. No philosophy of history comes anywhere close to the mark of accuracy without a true understanding of history in the light of God's pronouncement as we read it there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And it's altogether proper if we're thinking biblically that the history of the world has both its beginning point and its sphere of reference from Genesis 3.15. Now I am not saying that there was no world nor history before Genesis 3.15. But I am saying that in the unfolding of redemptive history, particularly in what is theologically called a post-lapsarian world, that is the world after the fall of Adam, we see in the unfolding of human history this development of clans and then of nations and then in the movement of these nations from the one couple who are present there in Genesis chapter 3 and 15. And we see that there is no understanding, no true understanding of history that does not take its be beginning point and its sphere of reference from Genesis 3:15 for in that verse God announces to us that he has come to put enmity between Satan the serpent and the woman between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman there their offspring and there makes the promise that ultimately the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the serpent's head and in that process of having his head bruised uh, decisively or crushed, he shall bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And the whole history of the world, I am saying, is framed or it's structured around the conflict of these two seeds and the ultimate triumph of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus. But it is a triumph that is going to come by means of the bruising of the heel of this or the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman. Therefore, it should not surprise us, you and I, to find that very language of the first book of the Bible 
way back in the beginning of the garden, where these words are spoken right in the middle of the 12th chapter of the book of the Revelation. And here in chapter 12 of Revelation, we have what I would classify as a graphic portrayal of the conflict that surrounded the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the cry of this chapter is found in particular in verses 10 through 12. And all the conflict has been genuine and grim and it's rather dark portrayal of that conflict. Yet in verse 10, we see this great cry of conquest that comes from heaven. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren, the brothers, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him or they conquered him, nakao, and we are, you see that verb occur over and over in the book of the Revelation, conquered, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So chapter 12 begins a new division in the book of the Revelation, particularly if you've, you're familiar with Hendrickson's commentary upon this book. Uh, if you are familiar with his con commentary on this book titled More Than Conquerors, he says that the first 11 chapters of the book of the Revelation portray the struggle between the church and the world. But here in chapter 12, through to the end of the book, we have this cosmic dimension of that struggle. The struggle between the church and the world is the outward manifestation of another struggle or really part of the same struggle between Christ and Satan. And the 12th chapter of Revelation, you'll notice with me, look at it closely now, begins with what John describes as a great sign in heaven. There's this description of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head is this garland or this crown of 12 stars. And being with child, we're told that she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And then there's another sign in heaven. And he tells us, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And this dragon then stands before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she does, he may devour her child. And we read that she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman, she fled into the wilderness where we're told that she had a place prepared by God. And there she was nourished for 1,260 days. Now surely it's obvious who the woman is and who the child is. And who this horrible creature is described as this fiery red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his head.
And then in verse 7, we have the record of this conflict, of this war in heaven that John sees. Michael and his angels in battle against the dragon and his angels. And there is no prevailing. And there is no longer a place found in heaven then for the dragon and his angels. And he and his angels are thrown down to the earth. And who is he? The great dragon, verse 9, is cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then we read of this marvelous outburst of praise in, uh, that comes as a result of the triumph of the seed of the woman who has succeeded in defeating the old serpent, the devil, the fiery red dragon, the accuser of the brethren, cast down those identified with him, overcomes Satan and the devil, and they do so by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. Now verse 13. Look at it. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth. Now this is the victory. This is the triumph of the cross. And the resurrection in the life history of our Lord Jesus. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The church. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And though she is protected, we see that there is still the enmity of the serpent in seeking to assail and to assault her. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood or the river which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. You see, there's this great detail given to us regarding the struggle that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. The seed of the woman. And here is the serpent who is persisting in his rage against the seed of the woman. And what happens when he cannot destroy her seed? Her seed is called up to heaven. And those identified with her. And the woman he attacks, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That is the rest of her seed. And who are they? They're the ones who keep the commandments of God. And who hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. In his commentary on this book. Titled The Returning King. Dr. Vern Polythris, uh, he's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I can't resist this. He, he tells this story in his commentary about a group of seminary students who are at a local gym uh, playing basketball and they're getting some exercise. And when they were finished playing their basketball game, they happened to see that there's this janitor. 
sitting over in the corner of the gym. And so one of the students uh, sees him over there reading. He's sitting there and, and he's reading. He's very interested in, in, in the book that he has that he's holding there. And so one of the students, in order to satisfy the curiosity of them all, he decided he'd approach the man and he said, Excuse me, sir, but what are you reading? And the man said, oh, I'm reading the Bible. And he says, oh, great, you're reading the Bible. He says, what part of the Bible are you reading? He says, well, I'm reading the book of the Revelation. And you can imagine how <laughs> a seminary student might respond to someone reading that book. And the seminary student looks at the janitor and says, well, you really don't understand it, do you? And the janitor looked up at the student and he says, of course I do. <laughs> and the seminary student replied, you mean you understand what the book of the Revelation is all about? He says, well, sure I do. He says, well, tell me, what do you understand the book of the Revelation to be all about? And do you know what the janitor's simple answer was? Simple, but so profound in its accuracy. And I'll say it the way the janitor did with poor grammatical expression. But his understanding, it was spot on. He says, the book is all about this. Jesus is going to win. <laughs> he said, Jesus is going to win. You see, his Exegesis hadn't been spoiled by the experts looking over his shoulder to tell him what it really means. But, you know, one of the things that uh, Poitras says about the book of the Revelation, and also you see this in Dennis, Dennis Johnson's commentary as well, they point to the reality that the book of the Revelation is not a puzzle book. You don't treat the book of the Revelation like a puzzle book. It is a picture book. It is a picture book. And God is presenting these pictures to us. And the ultimate picture we see is that Jesus Christ triumphs over all of his and our enemies. So let's look at the conquest of Christ over the powers of evil. And again, the theme of this book, it's, it's really all about his triumph. That's the message of the risen Lord and the seven churches and the opening chapters of the book. In Revelation 3 and verse 21, uh, you'll notice that Christ says to the church of Laodicea, to him who overcomes or conquers, there's that verb, nakao, who overcomes or conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have overcame or conquered and sat down with my father on this throne. And in each of the six following letters in these churches in the Roman province of Asia. And then uh, we see in the very opening chapters of the book. There is a special promise made to each church. This special promise that is vouchsafed to each church, to the one who overcomes or who conquers. He says to the church of Ephesus, He who overcomes, conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life. 
And all the way through the book of the Revelation, the theme is that of Christ conquering. Until we come to chapter 21 and verse 7, at the revelation of the new heavens and the new earth, we read, He who overcomes, conquers, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You and I in Christ are meant to be conquerors. Victory and conquest and triumph are all pivotal notes in the New Testament all the way through it. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57, for example, where Paul is speaking of the resurrection of the believer. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, vikos, from the verb vikao, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nikao, rather, not V. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, where Paul alludes to the glorious ministry entrusted to him as an apostle of Jesus Christ, for which he breaks out in gratitude, he says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we read the classic promise of that passage in Romans 8 and verse 37, we're speaking of the steadfast certainty of our salvation. Paul says, yet in all these things that is in tribulation or persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, whatever may confront us in this life, he says we are more than conquerors. Who pair the nakao? Through Jesus Christ, through Him who loves us. So this is the object and the emphasis of God's purpose for us. That we may be conquerors, not defeated, but victorious. Underscoring that this ought to be the normal pattern for the Christian life. And so when we speak of conquering and conquest, I think that we can see there are some questions we need to ask. What is the battle described here? What is the nature of the conflict? What is it all about? As the old janitor told the seminary student, Jesus is going to win. And so let's look at this a little bit closer. What is the nature of this battle? What is it all about? Now, this is what is set before us in John's vision, which we see in the opening verses of Revelation 12. This cosmic conflict between the powers of good and of evil. And here we need to keep a number of things before us. The first thing to keep in our minds is this is a vision. That's the kind of genre that we're confronted with in the book of Revelation. That's the literary style in which it speaks to us. And because it is a vision, it's not intended for us to press all the details to find the precise meaning in every little detail like you've heard some people do. I grew up under that kind of ministry. I know what it's all about. And every week I was wondering how in the world the earth was going to hold together. But the second thing we can say about this vision is, is that when you look at it, it gives us what I would describe as a panoramic scene, as it were. It's something of a preface to all the visions that follow it in the book. 
with the powers of evil on the one side and with God himself on the other. The third thing I think you can say about this book is that there is this unmistakable link between the content of this vision and that which took place or transpired in the Garden of Eden. Because what you have here in chapter 12 is a conflict between a woman and the serpent. <clears throat> and so we need to reflect back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 to help us to understand what we see in Revelation chapter 12. Because it was there that in her innocence, the woman was assaulted by the serpent. And it was there that she was defeated. And it was there that man fell under the curse of sin and death through willful disobedience. But it was also there in that moment of defeat when Satan appeared to be absolutely triumphant that God enters the situation himself. And he rebuked Satan. He rebuffed Satan with these words which we read in Genesis 3. Because you have done this, you are more cursed than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And annexed to that rebuke was a word of promise, a word of prophecy, a word that spelled out then and there, following man's fall, the very doom of the evil one. For God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you shall bruise his, your, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Thus, in spite of the woman's failure and of sin entering into the world, the woman's seed suffering greatly. Nevertheless, the seed of the woman, we're told, would prove to be the ultimate victor in the ensuing conflict. And that conflict would be bitter. And yet the power of evil and the dominion of evil would finally, in the end, be broken by the seed of the woman. And so with that background in view, let's look a little bit closer at chapter 12. And the vision has been expanded and it's been placed, as it were, in this cosmic context. And it gives us the spiritual background to biblical and world history. Indeed, history only begins, that is, makes sense, if you understand the fact of that background, there's this spiritual warfare raging. And that this world is the battleground of the evil forces on the one side and the battle that rages within the hearts of each one of us as God's children. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this day, age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. But it's interesting when you compare what happened in the Garden of Eden with what this vision sets before us here in Revelation 12, you see how the characters have changed. Yes, it's still the woman, and it's still the serpent, 
And the serpent is still the aggressor. The conflict still rages, yet some changes have been made. The woman is no longer the childlike, innocent person walking in the midst of the streams and the trees and the cool breeze of the garden. But now she is portrayed as clothed in this heavenly splendor. The, the moon under her feet, wearing a garland on her head with twelve stars, a symbol of light. The embodiment of truth and righteousness. And who is this woman? Who is this one to give birth to the male child who will rule the nations, verse 5, with a rod of iron? Well, of course, the figure who is under the special protection of God, this figure through whose seed, through whom all the nations of the earth are to be blessed, is clearly symbolic of the church and of the people of God. And here she is portrayed as travailing in birth, about to give birth to the promised seed, the Christ, who is to bruise or to crush the serpent's head, in travail until Christ be formed in his people. And on the other hand, we have this dragon. And he has changed from the serpent who came to Eve in the garden. Now he is gigantic in magnitude, as it were. He's a fiery red python. And he's sweeping the stars with his tail. And he's increasing the darkness as he knocks them out of the heavens as it were. And we're told that he has seven heads. Um, <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, he, he makes an interesting comment uh, on this. And he says that the seven heads speak of the fact that he's full of craft and cunning. And he says these seven heads have diadems on them, speaking of the fact that he thinks he's a king. And these seven heads, Spurgeon says, they have ten horns, which are a symbol of power, alluding to the fact that he has more power than he does intelligence or wisdom. <laughs> and yet he says, and this is what I thought was rather humorous from Spurgeon. He says, he hasn't got enough power to execute all of his cunning and all of his craftiness. <laughs> he says... All that his cunning and craftiness that, in, that, that he's able to invent, he doesn't have enough power to execute any of it. And yet by his power and his craft, he leads men to rebel against God and he induces them to persecute his church. So do you see the picture that's set before us here by John the Apostle in the book of the Revelation. The battle lines are drawn. We have this dramatic comparison. What could be more helpless or defenseless than this woman who is travailing in birth to, to deliver this child? And what could be more terrifying than this seven-headed monster, this dragon? And humanly speaking, as portrayed here in this vision, it looks as though the church or the child doesn't stand in earthly of surviving, let alone winning. Indeed, it looks like all the odds are stacked against the woman and her child. 
And then we read in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule nations with a rod of iron. There's the dragon standing there that he might devour her child when she gives birth. But what happens? What happens at that moment? Her child was caught up to heaven and his throne, snatched away despite the seemingly incredible odds against him. Despite the fact that the woman appears altogether helpless and powerless. Despite the fact that the child appeared to be altogether vulnerable to the intents of this bloodthirsty dragon, the evil one. The child is snatched away up to the very throne of God and the victory was God's. And the woman was protected and nursed and as the dragon pursues nonetheless is defeated and cast down from the heavens. This then is the cosmic background, as it were, to what happened there upon the cross of Calvary. And you see how vitally important it was for the early church to understand this to anyone who stood there on that day of crucifixion, to any observer of Calvary, nothing could have seemed further from the explanation that I just gave you. Nothing could have seen, could have looked any other way than that this was the end of all of God's willing the good of the world. How could you say as you looked at the cross that that was an event of conquest and victory? How could you deduce that from what you were beholding on Golgotha's hill? Christ is rejected by the religious leaders of his day. Christ who had been betrayed, denied, deserted by all of his own disciples who had given in to fear. Crushed as it were under the powers of Rome. Crushed under all the evil wickedness of the age. And then that cry of anguish wrung from our Lord's lips. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Well, the dragon may have failed to devour the male child who was born to be king in Bethlehem's manger. He may have failed through the efforts of Herod. But did it not look to them as if on the cross the powers of evil had finally won? And yet, it is precisely at that the darkest hour that we behold the nature of the victory, how he won and how he achieved it in his dying. And we see that that is very important. You say, David, where do we see the death of Christ as a triumphal victory portrayed in the New Testament? And very quickly, as I wrap this up with these few verses, I want you to see this. You notice in chapter 5, in verse, verses 5 and 6, as John there is peering into the heavenly worship, what does he see when he looks at those, verse 5 of chapter 5? But one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David 
has prevailed, that is, has conquered. There's that verb, nikao, to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And who is that line? Who is that one who has conquered? Verse 6. And I looked in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. A lamb, a slain lamb on the throne. It was vitally important for the early Christians hounded to death, crushed under the hill of Rome, hated by their fellow countrymen, terrified by the powers of evil, when everything seemed to be against them, it was vital for them to understand that the victory was God's. And perhaps it was easier for them to think of the resurrection being the victory. But it was not the resurrection in a sense that was the victory. The victory was won on the cross. It was won on the cross because that's where the battle took place. The resurrection and the ascension were the vindication of Christ's victory on the cross. Because, you see, the whole life of Christ was the combat, the powers of evil. 1 John 3 and verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's another reason for the cross of Christ. Our Lord's coming into this world, his whole life and ministry constituted an onslaught on the citadels of Satan. As he undid the ravages of sin, as he ministered to people who were sick, as he dealt with men in whom the image of God had been marred and distorted, he set about to restore what had been lost. And our Lord's life was an assault of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And it was at Calvary that the climax of the battle was fought and won. Colossians 2 verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way. How? having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them in triumphing over them. Christ has utterly wiped out all the damning evidence of a broken law against his people. And he has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. And then last of all, this one verse, this verse really nails it. Having drawn the sting from the, all the powers raging against us, Christ exposed them and he shattered them and defeated them in his final glorious triumph. Hear this word from Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, 
That is the devil. Therefore, it is through the cross that the devil was destroyed and defeated. Now, that does not mean that the devil was annihilated at the cross. The word there for destroyed is used of a field that has been lying fallow and has become unproductive. It's a word that means that something has been brought to nothing, has been rendered powerless or effective. The devil still exists, but on the cross his power was broken. He was disarmed and he lost his dominion. I love the... The way one old preacher put it. He says the devil is still on the prowl as a roaring lion. But his teeth were pulled at Calvary. He lost his authority. He lost his claims. And the seed of the woman crushed his head. And he became a defeated foe. That dear people. Is the triumph of the cross. In which you and I share in union with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us pray.